1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. So glad to be joining you and glad you are with us for the show today. So let me use a really facile line to get us started. Temperatures, at least in North Georgia, are plunging. It is going to be frigid here tomorrow, but politics has never been hotter. And we are going to talk about politics, of course, on the show today. We're joined, as we always are, on Fridays by Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist. She writes the Political Insider on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper and oversees the Jolt, uh, which is at AJC.com every day and gives you a great summary of a lot of interesting and important political news. Uh, Patricia, by the way, we should say you have now posted your column that will be in the newspaper on Sunday. We'll put a link up to it on our social media sites. But it's a really, I haven't had a chance to read it, but you're taking on a subject that we have, we don't, as a, as a state, pay enough attention to, one that we should probably be doing a show about. Just give us a brief uh, 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 insight about your column today.
2: Yeah, so when with so many fights in Georgia right now about how to tell our own history, I wanted to get out of Atlanta and go to Macon. There is a new project down there to tell the story of the Creek people who lived throughout middle Georgia um, for thousands of years and were driven away by white settlers uh, to make way for new plantations. Um, they ended up in Oklahoma. If you go to Oklahoma, a lot of the same names that you see here in middle Georgia, it's all the same. Now, a citizen from from the Muskogee Creek Nation, has moved to Macon, and she's a part of telling that story through the eyes of the descendants of the people who lived it. Uh, it's,
1: a, it's a subject we really need to deal with. And I should point out, you know, Honore Fanon Jeffers was on our show a few months ago when her highly acclaimed novel, The Love Song of W.E.B. Du Bois, was published. And in that novel, she takes us way, way back into Georgia history and looks at Um, uh, Native American populations and how they were displaced back then. So it's obviously a subject that is of great importance. And I think it's getting a lot of currency right now. So I encourage people uh, to read that uh, column. Um, We're joined by uh, Professor Andra Gillespie, Professor of Political Science at Emory University, also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. How are you, Andra? I'm well. How are you? I'm terrific. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, Renee Alegria, the uh, CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital, is with us. I don't think we're trying to get Renee's audio uh, working. Right now we're having a little bit of an issue with it. We certainly will have him join us as soon as we possibly can. But um, until Renee is here... Let's start our conversation with uh, you, Patricia. So uh, there were two important polls released in the last uh, day uh, about Georgia politics. Uh, One was your own poll at the AJC, a poll of some 860 Georgians and uh, conducted by the University of Georgia. That poll, among many other things, shows that Brian Kemp has a pretty significant, substantial lead, I think it's fair to say, against David Perdue, and uh, simultaneously, Quinnipiac uh, University published their Georgia poll, and they too showed Brian Kemp with a pretty good lead over David Perdue. As a result of that, the Kemp campaign has called on Perdue to drop out. Um, Cody Hall's quote, I'm not going to give it to you exactly, but was essentially the only thing stopping Georgia from remaining red is David Perdue. The Purdue people fire back and say, we haven't even begun our media campaign. We think we're doing pretty well. Obviously, we think David Purdue is the only one who can beat Stacey Abrams. So what what do you want to uh, tell us about all that, Patricia?
2: Yes. So uh, Governor Brian Kemp and David Perdue are both making the case that they're the best one and the only one who can defeat Stacey Abrams in November. This poll says that right now, Georgians believe that uh, Brian Kemp is the one to not just uh, be. Uh, Stacey Abrams, but to be the governor. We had head-to-head matchups. We did not have a head-to-head matchup between uh, Kemp and Purdue, but there is a head-to-head med- matchup in November between both of these hypothetical races. Um, Brian Kemp has a seven-point lead over Stacey Abrams, and David Purdue has about a four-point lead, um, and so that has led to a ton of sniping between the two camps. Um, it's true that David Purdue has not gone up against Brian Kemp, but both of these gentlemen have basically universal name recognition, especially within the Republican electorate. And then um, you have to start to really think about um, what that argument looks like going forward. Um, There needs to be a united Republican party and there need to be Republican voters who believe that the election will be fair and they will be going to the polls. Um, So. That's uh, we've got a mixed bag in here when we start to dig into it for Republicans.
1: Yeah, by the way, thank you for pointing out that when I when, when I talk about Kemp having a lead over Purdue uh, in your poll, it's really kind of a bank shot in the sense that you did the hypothetical matchup uh, between uh, uh, Kemp and Abrams and Purdue and Abrams. And Kemp came out uh, stronger uh, on those numbers uh, right now. Yeah. Uh, um, So, uh, Andre Gillespie, uh, just starting with the polling on the uh, gubernatorial uh, race, uh, Quinnipiac's numbers on Purdue and Kemp, one of the things I thought was interesting is it's early and Quinnipiac did a pretty deep poll of Georgia political attitudes, which I thought confirmed what we already know. Georgia is going to be the center of the political universe in the months ahead.
0: Um, Well, Quinnipiac has a special place in my heart just because I went to school at Yale, which is uh, uh, about 10 miles away from Quinnipiac University. So, uh, you know, I used to drive past there to get to my pastor's house all the time when I was in graduate school. The fact that you have basically a national polling outfit that is doing public um, deep dives into surveys in Georgia suggests the significance of of this particular race. And Quinnipiac does this in, in lots of marquee statewide races for governor and for Senate. So, yeah, it does confirm that Georgia is on the map. I would caution for both of these polls, though, while I completely understand why Governor Kemp, uh, you know, is now urging David Perdue to drop out of the race. It is sort of the commonsensical political spin move to make here um, in this situation. And what the the UGA uh, survey shows in particular is that his lead over Stacey Abrams is a statistical lead, whereas Kemp's lead is a statistical, uh, Perdue's lead, excuse me, is is a statistical tie. But the problem is, is that surveys are a snapshot in time and they're only as good as the moment in which the question is asked. So, yes, when these surveys were taken, camp appears to be in an advantage. But what the Purdue camp is saying also makes sense that they still have a lot of time to campaign and the tide could shift at some point and attitudes can change over time. So basically what this portends is that UGA and Quinnipiac and I'm sure other Um, organizations are going to be doing much more polling in the state, tracking this over time. And then we can track the trends to see whether or not this is a blip, whether or not this is just the start of the contest or whether or not they're going to be, Events and actions that either campaign could take that could actually improve their fortunes. Uh,
1: we have Renee. I'll agree, Renee. Thank you. I'm glad you're with us. I know we had a little bit of a problem getting your audio uh, up and running, but now that you're here, what did you make of the uh, uh, of the polling that you saw? Either the AJCs or Quinnipiacs.
3: Sure. Uh, well, I'm, I'm so glad you can hear me, number one. Uh, <laughs> and thanks for having me. Right. What a relief. Look, I, I, I think that that there's so much, uh, well, baggage when it comes to all things polling. I mean, uh, we have seen historically recently, uh, you know, when did, when Hillary Clinton, the, the election night of Hillary Clinton, you know, I mean, where did we all think the polling was pointing to? And look what, what happened. We've seen that happen over and over again. Um, so, you know, a little bit of caution there. That said, data is is great. And, and I agree that like having the insight that we have when we do get these polls uh, to pour over uh, is is a is a positive. I, I do agree that, like, look, you know, the, the world is watching what's happening in Georgia. You know, I, I do think that the uh, Republican Party is going to have uh, M.M.A. Saturday night fight every day going forward. And it's going to be uh, it's going to get bloody and it's going to be uh, a real, uh, you know, real street fight. Uh, with how that's going to work out, which is traditionally not where Republicans are. They're the you unit, know United Party rank and file. They you know point in one direction and they march march toward that goal. So it's it's rather uh, it's rather interesting to see how it's playing out. Um, look, the poll itself was uh, was a mixed bag, right? I mean, uh, the economy was the number two issue, uh, followed by COVID. Um, you know, there are so many things about this poll that. I feel we uh we can we can talk about Biden, Kemp, Warnock, Ossoff all at highish disapproval ratings. Um Abram, Abrams and Warnock both slightly behind of course as we as we discussed, but respondents were also and I think this is interesting strongly for Roe v Wade, gun control and ballot access. So that contradicts a lot of where the voters actually registered who they would vote for. So uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting snapshot.
1: All right, Renee Allegria, thank you for laying out a few of the things that I do want to get into with the poll. And one of them, Patricia, is uh, a real headline. What you know, it's it, I have to say, it was just a couple weeks ago on the show that I suggested that maybe presidential approval uh, ratings, uh, we shouldn't be talking about them quite as much because I see the country is so divided, so evenly that it strikes me that for the most part. It's going to be hard for any president to get above 50 percent for very long in their approval uh, ratings. But but in this case, the fact that Biden's numbers, excuse me, are in the low 30s really does strike me as something that merits uh, a discussion. Now, I want to say, because I got a lot of pushback on this from listeners yesterday, we know that a lot of Biden's unpopularity comes from the resistance he's gotten to many of the things he's tried to put in place by Republicans, by Trump uh, uh, acolytes, uh, by anti-vaxxers and the like. Nevertheless, the numbers are the numbers, Patricia.
2: Yes. Um, So I I really do agree with you. Um, It's important to to make a distinction between an approval rating and an election head to head. This Joe Biden is not running against anybody in this poll. This is not a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. That's a totally different conversation. This is a choice between you're very pleased with how Joe Biden is doing, or you don't feel good about it. And in those numbers just a third of Georgians approve of the job that Joe Biden is doing. And the reason that's especially important and meaningful is because in May, 51% of Georgians that Joe Biden was on the right track and they approved of his job. And that was four months into the job. So it wasn't just, you know, right after he was inaugurated, he had had a little bit of time to get his legs underneath him. So this is a really precipitous drop. And it's followed a number of losses, public losses for Joe Biden. Um, The Afghanistan withdrawal was just a visual catastrophe. And I don't think it was ever really fully explained or dealt with by the administration. Um, If you then look at inflation uh, has really continued um, to bubble up under the surface. And now it's really infusing people's everyday lives. And the administration also, I don't think, has really dug into that. And the third piece of this is COVID, of course. This is everybody's daily life. And at this point, it's just a daily grind. And we're still struggling to get through it. In some cases, we're still fighting with our neighbors. It's infusing school boards. It's become political. It's just not over yet. And so I think people are exhausted. And Joe Biden's the president. And so that we're seeing that correlation. Is it a causation? Maybe, maybe not. That's up to voters. But the numbers here are troubling for Joe Biden, and they're troubling for Democrats who rely on him to get that party ID up and get the, comp- get the party in a place they want to be next November to run free election. Uh,
1: Andre, I want you to jump in, but I'd like you to also address the fact that um, the, the coalition that elected Biden in Georgia seems uh, to be uh, really uh, uh, struggling with him right now. African-American disapproval has arisen has uh, uh, dramatically. Uh, independent voters, the, the people who came together and elected him in Georgia, uh, seem to be at least at this moment in time. And as you point out, that's all a poll is. They're unhappy with Joe Biden.
0: Yeah. um, uh, Forgive me if if I start to say some stuff that sounds a little too jargony or a little too mathy, but I kind of want to channel my colleague, Alan Abramowitz. And so everybody knows that Alan is one of the people who does predictive models of election outcomes. And he has two different types of models. And I think the one that's most popular is the presidential model for presidential election years that does actually factor job approval rating in. Um, I think it's really important for people to realize that when he's doing predictive models of how many seats are gonna be won or lost in the House or the Senate, that actually doesn't include the president's approval rating. So that's looking at things like the number of seats held in the incumbent party. And so the things that we look at when we're trying to predict who is gonna win a presidential election are a lot different than trying to predict the number of seats that one party is going to hold, and in this case, the National Legislative Chamber. So when we think overall about the national mood, and I think that this has some applications for Georgia, the thing that uh, you want to think about is the generic reelect number, and then you also wanna think about enthusiasm. Um, And so what we're seeing, and that's actually true in the AJC poll as well, is that Democrats and key Democratic constituencies um, are more likely to report that they don't plan on voting in, in, in the 2022 election. That's concerning just from a turnout thing, because in a race where there are sort of closely even numbers, or maybe not quite, but pretty close numbers of Democrats and Republicans in the state, if you've got Democrats saying that I'm more likely to sit this one out, that doesn't portend well for Democrats actually being able to get enough people to the polls to actually be able to win elections. But in general, what the effect is, is indirect. And these models are designed to be non-recursive. So we're not thinking of feedback loops. We're not thinking of sort of indirect effects when we're thinking about these models. Right. So if people are ticked off because Joe Biden didn't live up to their expectations and then they make the decision that, well, I'm just not going to vote in this election, that's where you're going to see that downstream effect, Uh, But it's not necessarily directly because of the fact that, like, Joe Biden is unpopular at this moment, though, you know, I would never argue that that's helpful.
1: Okay, uh, thank you for for all of that. Um, Renee, you already mentioned uh, one of the other things that's interesting in this poll is uh, the way uh, Georgians respond to some hot button issues. Um, And it strikes me that their response points out why Republicans who are running in primary contests Uh, and then hope to go on to be in a general election, are kind of walking a very, very uh, slippery slope. Um, So by a very wide margin, and numbers are are not really great on on the radio, so I'm just going to talk more in generalities, but by a very wide margin, Georgians said they do not want the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, which they very well might be headed toward doing. And then by a smaller margin, but still, I think it's a majority, uh, they said that if the court uh, uh, allows Roe to continue for, for the time being, uh, they, do, they do not want Georgia's abortion laws to go into effect either. Um, your thoughts on that?
3: Well, this is, this is uh, why it's a bit confusing uh, when you're reading a poll like this, right, and how to analyze the tea leaves, if you will, to see what the voters are uh, feel personally and what they register as being something that is akin to their heart and home versus a candidate and the party that that candidate represents. And I think Roe v. Wade, for example, is a perfect example of that, where voters uh, in Georgia, according to this poll, want Roe v. Wade to hold, yet the candidates that this poll says they're backing uh, do not back Roe v. Wade. So, you know, you take that with a grain of salt and you, you know, analyze the numbers accordingly. I I, I think that when it comes to how this affects uh, Biden's uh, numbers and his popularity in in georgia and across the country you know he he's had some very public legislative stumbles right with the voting rights act and we're still dealing with the omicron surge the death rates are still sky high compared to where they should be and while so many folks are like okay we've moved beyond omicron it's it's still there right what is interesting though and i think that this is one of those okay it's january right, and we need to pause and see what the marathon is going to hold from now through uh, voter day in November, is that the economy is roaring back. GDP grew 5.7%, which was announced uh, yesterday or the day before. And, you know, that's the that's the highest the economy has roared back since 1984. Uh, unemployment is down to 3.9%. There are a lot of good things that uh, voters believe Biden is doing, and yet the messaging is not there to communicate effectively yet how well he's doing on that front. Also, I do think that the Supreme Court nominee is really going to do wonders in galvanizing support and enthusiasm for Biden. If he makes good on his promise to put a black woman on the Supreme Court, I I can... well, let's just take a few polls after that happens and see what they All right. say.
1: Um, Patricia, let me bring her back to, to the state and, and what I started with here, which was, you know, hot button issues for Republicans are great if you're running in a primary, uh, you know, limiting abortion, perhaps almost outlawing abortion, as the law here uh, uh, says. Um, constitutional carry was unpopular among the people who were polled. So um, these are issues that are great for Republicans in primaries, but again, They're they're going to have to struggle with them with the general election public that seems to not approve of those uh, measures.
2: Yeah, with both constitutional carry, which is also known as permitless carry by uh, Democrats, with constitutional carry and the question on abortion, there are actual bills moving through the state legislature right now at the committee levels uh, that deal with both of those, uh, those issues. Um, Republicans introducing measures um, with a lot of Republican support to lift the requirement to have a permit to carry a gun here in Georgia. Um, and Senator Butch Miller has also talked about introducing a Texas-style Abortion ban, six week mm. abortion ban here in Georgia. Um, and those are two issues that, in this poll, very clearly a large majority of voters um, do not want. Uh, it com- they both come in at about uh, 20, 25, 30%, um, depending on exactly how you're parsing those numbers. Uh, but that's a really small minority compared to the entire state. They're great message issues, they're great for Republicans to talk about. But when you talk about actually putting words down on paper, moving legislation through, and pushing through very real significant changes to Georgia law, I think it becomes a lot riskier for Republicans to finalize that, to actually pass it through both chambers and have the governor sign those bills. Um, They would be very popular for Governor Kemp in that Republican primary with David Perdue. He would love to have those. Um, However, getting through to a general election, um, how does that how does that position him and other Democrats, I'm sorry, other Republicans, especially statewide, um, when you're talking about these very unpopular issues that do not play well with the full state of Georgia, um, but you do want them um, in some cases to t- have, uh, to tout in a Republican primary. Um, the last thing I'll say is that these bills are dramatic changes to Georgia law. Um, and so uh, they would have very real consequences on people's lives. And um, so it's it's more than just an academic debate at this point. Uh, Can really change people's lives very quickly.
1: Okay, Patricia Murphy gets the last word on this segment of Political Rewind. Let's do this. Let's take our first break of the show and come back. Let's talk about some issues in the legislature right now that are worth our attention to. You're listening to Political Rewind. We're back on Political Rewind. Professor Andre Gillespie, Emory University, Renee Alegria, the CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital, and the AJC's Patricia Murphy join us for our conversation today. Uh, Patricia Murphy, there are a lot of hot button issues floating around in the Capitol right now. And uh, a couple of them relate to how Republicans, some Republicans, uh, want to make it easier for parents. Uh, to get involved in how uh, classes are taught, how subjects are taught, what subjects are taught in their children's schools. Um, And so let's look at a couple of those uh, fairly briefly. Um, One of them is a measure that um, started... Well, both of the measures I'm going to talk about, I think, started in the Senate. One of them uh, is a measure that would now... Bar the teaching of so-called divisive materials, and of course the reference really is to critical race theory. And it would, in fact, uh, I think it, it, it would impose a, a financial penalty on schools that uh, taught those materials. Am I, if I got that that one right, or is that the one that relates to uh, uh, the book bans?
2: But you've got that right.
1: <laughs> okay. So, t- what what is what is going on with this, this whole notion of critical race theory. We've talked about it on the show on many occasions. It isn't taught in schools here. And even David Ralston, the Speaker of the House on our show just a couple days ago, said this looks like one of those uh, uh, bills in search of an issue.
2: Yes. Well, and uh, we come immediately to the problem that critical race theory is sort of what you want it to be because uh, there is a college level sort of academic framework, as um, as college level professors will explain it. Um, th- that is called critical race theory. But then when you get down into this debate that's happening in both the Georgia State House and the Georgia State Senate, um, the conversation is, is, well, is it actually curriculum? Is it a lens through which you are framing certain issues and and historical references? Um, Even just defining critical race theory is very, very difficult for lawmakers right now. There's an attempt to do it, but they're running into some problems. Um, Once you define critical race theory, then you have to decide who's going to Um, enforce critical race theory being taught or not taught and who's going to report it. Is it going to be the students? Is it fellow teachers? Is it parents? Um, I think it is just it is an incredibly sticky question. And that's why legislators typically do not get into the curriculum level up when they're talking about laws pertaining to education. There has long been um, sort of a standing agreement that lawmakers would stay out of local school issues. Uh, At one point, Governor Kemp decided to entirely veto a bill because it instructed schools to extend recess by 15 minutes, which he said was totally antithetical to the idea that school boards should have the control over the decisions that are going on inside the schools. Um, Overall, this obviously is a byproduct of just the very painful discussions we're having right now. now about race and uh, social justice in our country. Um, But there is a political win that Republicans put on the board in Virginia last year uh, with Governor Glenn Youngkin. um, And education, uh, quite by surprise uh, for many people, uh, even who were in politics in Virginia at the time, they didn't expect education to pop up as the main issue in that race, especially parents' involvement and parents' discretion over their children's education. Because of that Virginia win that was unexpected and the issue that was unexpected, Republicans around the country, including Georgia, are using this right now as general assemblies are coming into session and thinking, well, if it worked in Virginia, it could work here. And I think even some parents are saying, oh, is this something I need to know about? Um, So it's uh, we don't know where this is going to go, but it's it's very, very hot in the Capitol
1: right now. You know, you know, Renee and then Andra, I I think one of the things Patricia said that really strikes me as as worth uh, unpacking a little bit more is um, ban critical race theory. Uh, ban obscene books. Those are great bumper stickers if you're a Republican. I mean, they work right. But when you try to add the details, what is, how are you going to define what is obscene uh, in in the legislation that you write? Um, How are you going to define... pornography. for It's Potter Stewart, just Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart. <laughs> in A famous case on pornography said, I, well, I know it when I see it. He couldn't get any closer to a definition than that. And so, Renee, whether it's talking about banning books that are somehow uh, obscene or banning the teaching of subjects which make people uncomfortable or are divisive, Getting down into what the language of those bills are is really going to be something to watch. Look, I, I the the
3: details are are sketchy to say the least when it comes to debate about what uh, CRT is. The you know the the article that you point out, you know the buzzwords, you know uh, divisive topics, privilege, oppression. I, they're they're not even trying to hide the fact that people uh, being protected from discomfort are who? Uh, students who identify as white, male, heterosexual. And I think the, uh, the other side of this is, well, what about everybody else historically? And this is what this debate is, is forcing us uh, to think about. I, I think one thing that isn't mentioned is that the students, are, the students themselves are not making these complaints or saying that they are being offended or harmed by what they're taught. It's the parents, it's political and racial. Uh, you know, according to the uh, American Library Association, the A- ALA, parents uh, and patrons initiate over 50% of all book challenges in the United States. And 1% of those challenges actually come from complaints that are originate with students, and you know, so again, this is a lot of bluster. Uh, the details are, are are not exactly formed. Uh, we we see the rhetoric being effective, as as Patricia pointed out, in Virginia, um, CRT is not taught in our schools. Uh, it it's largely academic and theoretical, and it's a slippery slope, right? Uh, first, it's CRT, the divisive concepts, and anything that's unspecified as being discomfort. In, in schools? And, and where does that take us as uh, a society? And these these are the big questions that we're having to con- confront with, with school and how school and education and school boards are being weaponized in local elections.
1: Andre jump in.
0: I, I have so many thoughts, I'm not 100% sure about where to, to jump in on this. <laughs> you know, about the idea of kind of people feeling guilt or people feeling shame or people feeling discomfort this is what keeps democracies on our toes this is what actually makes us do better so yeah sometimes if people want to feel bad because of stuff that other people did in their name that they benefited from you know 150 years ago that's our reminder as a society collectively we that includes we marginalized folks like me as a, as an a, as a, you know the sort of uh, goad to do better And I I think we need to sort of understand that like discomfort is a part of the learning process and discomfort is a part of society sort of making itself better and making sure that we actually are living up to our creed. As far as CRT is concerned in schools, I mean, Patricia has mentioned it, I've said it plenty of times on this show, there's no way I'm teaching your seven-year-old that because your seven-year-old doesn't understand that. I do want kids to learn that slavery was the cause of the civil war in Georgia, right? That's a historical fact, But some people would argue that that's critical race theory. Um, And that actually gets to the underlying part of the problem. There are people who don't want to face the fact that bad things happen in this country, that certain people disproportionately bore the brunt of it, and that they continue to bear the brunt of it. And there's also this resistance to thinking about systems, which is basically what CRT is about, in talking about ideas of systemic racism. And there are differences in terms of how people perceive that Uh, that can follow along racial lines, that can follow along partisan lines, but we've got to have these discussions. And in particular, if we are shielding older children from things which they are actually old enough to be able to grasp, we are doing ourselves a disservice. You are making my job harder at the collegiate level because there are things that I shouldn't have to teach that I kind of have to go back and make sure that people know or make sure that we're all on the same fact page about certain ideas. And then it's part of critical thinking for us to be able to wrestle with these ideas and figure out ways to move forward as a society. And the idea that this really isn't sort of about what we're teaching K-12 curricula, the idea that this is being brought up so that people want to monitor what's being taught at the University System of Georgia is also problematic because these are adults that we're dealing with. Adults can deal with discordant information. They can argue. They can sort of figure out the way ways to sort of think about um, facts and to gather things in ways that are empirical and, and systematic. And the idea that you want to stifle that information, even for adults, suggests that this really sort of, you know, isn't, you know, sort of just an agree to disagree type of moment, but that this is some type of whitewashing that sort of, you know, as people have talked about, sort of smacks of authoritarianism and smacks of fear in ways that I just don't think are, are going to be helpful for our society going forward.
1: Patricia, um, let me throw out an example of some of the, the concerns that that many people have about when you start looking at how parents, for instance, uh, can can put pressure and interfere with what's taught in a school. Um, you'll already know this story because it made headlines yesterday. Um, uh, the school board in McMinn County, Tennessee, has voted to remove the book *Mouse*, the Art Spiegelman, a celebrated. Uh, a graphic novel about the Holocaust. Uh, I think it won the the Pulitzer Prize. They removed it from the curriculum, from the libraries because of, quote, rough, objectionable language in the book. There is disturbing imagery. It's about the Holocaust. Um, And by the way, Spiegelman uh, portrays the Jews who are the victims of this, of the Holocaust, as mice. um, and, And does that very specifically Because it's a step away from humans and it gives us a different way to look at all this. And this is the sort of thing that I think there are a lot of people who really fear uh, could start happening in Georgia if if we go forward with a a law that, that bans books in this way.
2: Well, you know, of course, the reason that it's so important to fully know about history and fully understand history is so that we don't repeat it. It is very obvious. Um, And there is still, of course, resistance in Georgia to fully discuss um, exactly what happened during slavery. Uh, There's resistance to talk about what happened to the Creek Indians, by the way. That is where I was Mm -hmm. in Macon, Um, uh, driven off the land at gunpoint, uh, sent to Alabama, marched on foot to Oklahoma um rapes, murders, war crime atrocities for years. Um it is just uh, it is incredibly Uh, graphic and difficult to know about, but it was worse to go through. I promise you that. And so um, it's our responsibility to understand these things, to explain these things to our children when they're ready to hear about it, um, and so that we as a society don't go backward instead of forward. Um, And so to have these uh, really super important, um, weighty conversations uh, uh, swirled up into a political cycle, to me, is very frustrating to watch. To be honest with you, Um, uh, to see people uh, with primaries on the ballot or trying to ward off a primary during qualifying coming up, um, that's a lot of what's going on in in this. It it just is. Um, At the same time, I think parents uh, do have a right to know what's happening in their children's schools. There should certainly be transparency, there should be a a two way dialogue uh, about um, why that's there. Um, But as to who decides, that is what elected officials are for at the school board level. Um, but then uh, just to go a little further down this rabbit hole, um, it is uh, it's a problem that at, at the Georgia General Assembly is just going to is really feels like it's going to continue and really um, uh, uh, continue to bubble up and uh, probably boil at some point.
1: OK, uh, let's do this. Let's get our final break. Of the show out of the way still have a lot. I'd like to talk with a panel about and we'll do that after these messages. <laughs> Welcome back to Political Rewind, Uh, Patricia Murphy. I want to go to you uh, uh, on the column that you uh, published the other day. You you took a look at the U.S. uh, Senate race, the GOP primary, uh, where Herschel Walker has uh, captivated so much uh, of the Republican base, apparently. Um, And you talk about the fact that uh, Latham Sadler, Gary Black, Kelvin King all have very distinguished records of one sort or another and yet cannot seem to get any traction against uh, Herschel Walker. Um, Talk about a little bit about your uh, what the candidates, the other candidates said to you about the frustrations that they experienced.
2: So, yes, these are the uh, three candidates not named Herschel Walker running in that U.S. Senate race for the Republicans, all three um, in a normal election year, you would think would have the kinds of attributes and backgrounds that GOP voters would be really pleased with. Latham Latham Sadler is a former Navy SEAL. Kelvin King uh, went to the uh, Air Force Academy and then started his own business. Very successful. Um, Gary Black, of course, has been elected statewide three times. Very popular statewide official here in Georgia. Um, But up against this incredible celebrity of Herschel Walker. They just Uh, cannot catch a break in this town, it feels like. Um, And so they all said when they are um, going around the state, and they are all going around the state, they're getting in front of any audience they can. They've got to get their name IDs up. Uh, They're saying that they talked to GOP voters who have not seen Herschel Walker. Um, If they've been to an event with Herschel Walker, it was very controlled, um, very small. You had to know about it in order to find it. Um, And they're trying to make themselves available any way they can. Um, But Herschel Walker, has led this race since before he got into it. Um, He's been able to raise um, $5 million in the last quarter alone. Um, And so he's just the Goliath in this race. These guys are all trying to be the other one to possibly get into a runoff against Herschel Walker and then make it a case between themselves who are, they say, uh, qualified, um, have the backgrounds and ready for the job. Um, And they all say that they don't believe Herschel Walker is any of those things, um, let alone a recent uh, returnee to Georgia. And so um, they're trying to to get in there um, it, to make it a one-on-one against Herschel Walker. But it's a huge struggle, and it, it has a lot to do uh, simply with his celebrity and his football career.
1: You know, um, uh, Andra, conventional wisdom about primary campaigns and about the value of a, of a candidate going through a primary campaign has long been that it's, it's good for a candidate to get a strong challenge, that in being challenged, uh, the candidate will be asked questions about background, about uh, certain issues that might be considered controversial, and all of those things will get vetted in a primary so that by the time you get to the general election, your opponent from the other party doesn't have that ammunition to use against you. I don't know that that has any bearing on what's happening with Herschel Walker and what's likely to happen if, in fact, he goes on to win the nomination. Although there certainly is a lot of ammunition that could be used against him, uh, it, but right now those three other candidates are not getting, making any inroads in, in getting that sort of thing vetted.
0: Um, and unfortunately, that's kind of how the cookie crumbles sometimes. And so, yeah, it sucks to be Gary Black, Kelvin King or Latham Sadler. But unfortunately, this is where they are. And so they're just going to have to figure out how to maneuver. And it's not fair, but life isn't fair. And so and neither is politics in in, in these particular instances. Um, you know, in some ways, people bring lots of different attributes and resources to bear Uh Walker's celebrity is what actually brought him to the forefront. And it's especially poignant now in an era where personality politics kind of reigns supreme. Um, And so part of that is parties have been weak for a couple of generations, sort of overall nationally, where there would have been some filtering that probably wouldn't have let Walker kind of in. But when you do have a politics of personality, somebody who is beloved like Herschel Walker could skip over a bunch of steps and then sort of make his way into a race. I mean, if this were totally fair, Gary Black would be the front runner because he's the one with the most experience. And I would have argued that King and Sadler in particular were kind of always a little bit over their skis and probably should have started off running for something smaller and building credibility in that kind of way. But that's the traditional way of doing it. A lot of people are still looking at that Donald Trump playbook, saw how it was successful because of his megawatt celebrity. And they're sort of, you know, sort of reading the same thing into this Herschel Walker race. And so that's why it's been difficult for the other folks to make it through. I totally understand. I, you know, was the smart, earnest kid who would run for, um, you know, like student council president. (laughs) And then would lose, you know, uh, because like the more popular kid would run or, you know, one year it was the guys who ran against me made some crack like during the assembly and I just couldn't match them wit to wit. And so it didn't matter. And so that, you know, it's the same thing that's happening here.
3: Renee? Well, Audra, then you went to Yale and showed everybody, right? (laughs) (laughs) My classmates did well, too. (laughs) I, I... It would be nice, you know, it would be nice, right, to believe that the work uh, involved with connecting with voters still means something, you know. If King and Black and Sadler can reach the actual voters and effectively highlight Herschel's pretty obvious controversial issues, his Trump baggage, his out-of-touch wealth, uh, lack of policy insight and social media gaffes, etc. cetera, Um, maybe one could, you know, push the boundary to some sort of surprise win or at least open the door enough so that Warnock can, you know, do what Warnock does best, which is intelligently articulate the issues for and connect with real voters. Um, You know, when you take a look at the cult of personality as Andre really pointed out so expertly with Herschel Walker and and his son for that matter. you know they've been they've been uh, really exhibiting some odd social media behavior. Um, you know in December, it was widely reported that Walker went on this crazy rant with about build back better and you know it, it was another red flag of okay, is he really, Equipped to go on the campaign trail and talk about these issues um, and, and and his son, and I bring his son into this because I think it's it's important to see how the two generations are effectively mapping out their messaging. Um, he was slammed for complaining about gas prices, uh, for example, and he was wearing a thirteen hundred dollars hoodie while he did so and you know those kind of examples when we get closer to the election are going to be highlighted in a big way and it's it will be up to the voters to really take a look at okay are, are those the individuals uh, obviously particularly walker to uh, to best represent real georgians the jury's going to be out until then
1: All right. Um, Obviously, the Senate race is going to be much on our agenda in the uh, weeks and months ahead. Uh, The primaries are getting fairly close. We're talking about May. And so things are going to start moving even at an even more accelerated pace in the weeks ahead. Um, Patricia Stephen Breyer uh, decides it's time to retire. He'd been under a lot of pressure from some liberal organizations that wanted him to step down uh, in time to give Joe Biden uh, a Democratic Senate that could confirm the Biden replacement. Um, and, and you know, his career was pretty remarkable uh, because, as Linda Greenhouse points out in a wonderful essay on Breyer, she wrote uh, in The Times yesterday, he believed in the power of facts, evidence and expertise. Uh, he believed that the Constitution was a document that could help make the country uh, better, better, uh, greater in many ways, he was not a um, an originalist. He thought that facts could determine uh, what needed to happen. And as recently as the Supreme Court uh, case on uh, the Biden corporate mandate for vaccines, uh, he was the one. He was one of the people who dissented from the court's decision that it was unconstitutional, and basically said, "Are you telling us that?" People who are members of the Supreme Court know more about public health than uh, OSHA, an organization which works with public health to determine the best ways to protect people in a uh, society. So uh, it is a big loss. But of course, the bigger issue is what happens next with a replacement.
2: Yeah, I think um, also one of the most important uh, features of uh, Justice Breyer's time on the court is that he's really been a defender of the court and tried to keep Mm. it out of political conversations, tried to uh, make the case that they are not even though they're political appointees, they're not political actors. And he felt that it was super important for people not to see them as political actors. Otherwise they wouldn't trust their decisions to be apolitical. They wouldn't trust their decisions to be um, guided by the law and guided by the constitution. And so I think that's a voice that we will really miss because that's a voice that's really necessary right now. He's not the only member of the court who feels that way, but his um, his advocacy for the court itself is really important um, in his career. Uh, However, you know, turn the page very quickly, Um, and this is a huge political um, dynamic. There will be a major political fight over whomever Joe Biden puts forward. Um, It is a chance for Joe Biden, if it goes smoothly, and you have to say if, (laughs) if it goes smoothly, um, it would be a real chance for Joe Biden to hit the reset button with progressives. Um, He has said that he intends to appoint a Black woman to that post. Uh, That was very important to Jim Clyburn, when Jim Clyburn uh, said that he would uh, uh, endorse Joe Biden ahead of that South Carolina primary. So it's an important political moment, and it's ironic that it's spurred by somebody who really wanted to stay out of politics during his career. Yeah,
1: Andra, um the fact that the president yesterday, in fact, said, "I told you during the campaign I would nominate an African American woman. I will uh, do that." An important moment uh, in the in in what the uh, in what the court could become.
0: Um, I think it's an important moment um, in that Uh, President Biden is keeping a campaign promise, Um, and it's a campaign promise that even though it seems somewhat symbolic and it wasn't at the top necessarily of African-American voters' um, minds when they were supporting him, um, it would have been something that I think would have been held against him and could have further depressed potential turnout amongst African-American voters. Um, I think the debate now that's coming upon Joe Biden actually sticking to his guns and now this implicit debate about affirmative action where we're now maligning the credentials of eminent black female jurists is also a really important one, and I think it fits into our discussion of critical race theory and how uncomfortable we are with acknowledging racial redress. So this is, you know, a Supreme Court that has been overwhelmingly white and male for its entire history. The fact that you can count on your hands the number of people who are not white men who have been Supreme Court justices, the idea that you're going to add one Black woman, it's going to make her the third Black Supreme Court justice ever, right, is going to put people in arms and start talking about affirmative action, right, for people who have been, you know, federal judges and appellate court judges and, you know, educated at the finest schools in this country to say that these people are not qualified and that we're not going to be intentional about making sure that we have that type of voice and perspective represented on the court. And also that these women cannot leave their blackness and their femaleness at the, at the door when they're making decisions objectively, I think is a really, really important conversation that we've had. And it's actually been somewhat disturbing to hear sort of how this has been used from them pulling up every black woman. And I know it's only 39 federal judges that we're talking about to just be like, OK, well, they're all being considered right when that's probably not the case as well. To people actually casting aspersions on their record there there's just so much there and there's so much that again reflects uh the deep fissures and the deep problems that we have with race in the society
1: um if, uh, uh, renee we don't want to leave this discussion without pointing out that stacy abram's sister leslie Gardner, who's a federal judge down in the middle district of georgia her name has been mentioned there are probably a few j- judges based on what i'm reading who may be above her in the ranking of this but the fact that she is even in the mix is uh, fascinating, especially as Abrams gets her campaign underway.
3: No, it's, it's absolutely true. I, I, I think that this is going to play out in, in, in so many different ways. Right. We're, we're, we're going to see a galvanized Democratic base really take a look at what is happening, how the how the nomination process takes place, what the right is going to do, say, and possibly block, attempt to block uh, about any any potential nominee, and how that's going to affect uh, voters of color primarily, and and a liberal base that wants to see a better reflection of a Supreme Court that looks like America. Right. Um, that's on the one hand.
1: Well, I'm sorry, Renee, we're, we're we're running out of time, and I do want to ask one more question. Uh, Patricia, you talked. Sure. We don't we don't know how this fight is going to end up. But there are reasons to think that um, it it is not going to be to Republicans' advantage to fight too hard um, unless Biden picks a really extreme African-American candidate for the job.
2: Well, uh, the fact that it's the first year of Joe Biden's presidency, um, I think, or just into the second year, um, I think argues for the fact that they will, that Republicans are certainly to, certain to uh, vet her thoroughly. There will be lots of outside groups that will do more than vet her, will probably malign her and will reach out to um, uh, senators. And you have to put Raphael Warnock at the top of this list, senators in uh, swing states who uh, are under pressure. In um, elections coming up in November. Um, so it will um, it will there will be a political fight about it. But I don't think it will be a, you know, a major, a major effort. Patricia
1: Murphy gets the last word on today's political rewind. We are completely running out of time. Sorry, I had to cut everybody a little short. Renee Allegria, Andre Gillespie, Patricia Murphy, thank you for a terrific conversation. Thank you all for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. Stay warm this weekend. And yes, also stay healthy. Um, Wear a mask, um, and uh, if you haven't got a booster shot, please go get it. Take care. We'll see you all next week.